2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we had made when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open if you haven't already closed them. Uh, We're going to look at 2 Peter 1 together today. And let's pray again and ask God to, to meet us during this time. Lord, what we open before us is nothing less than your word. And so we pray that we would hear. Pray that we would hear and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're beginning a series on the Word of God. And what you believe about this book literally shapes everything about your life. That's not an exaggeration. What we believe about this book, the book you hold in your hands or are looking at on your little phone, shapes everything about our lives. Is this the Word of God? Is it a Word of God among others? Does it merely contain the Word of God for us to somewhere find it in there? Or is it Is this book something else altogether? How you answer that question, what we believe about the Bible, shapes your understanding of humanity, who we are, why we're here, of morality, what is right and wrong, how we should live. It shapes our understanding of what we would call philosophy, how we think, what we do or how we pursue what is true. It shapes our views of society, how we relate to each other, how we uh, think of different institutions like marriage or family or government or vocation. Because ultimately, what you believe about this book is inextricably related to what you believe about God. You cannot separate the two. And what we believe about God shapes everything about us. What we believe about God and what we believe about the Bible, those are intimately tied together. Is this thing God's word or not? That's the question. As I I mentioned uh, earlier this morning, uh, we take a pretty serious uh, view of the Bible at Westgate. Um, In our practice, uh, uh, we hope, we try to, and in our confession as well. 
Uh, If you look, you know, if you're familiar with our doctrinal statement, uh, Article 2 of our doctrinal statement as a church reads like this. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. So that's our conviction uh, as a church. And that conviction about Scripture stands squarely within the historical orthodox uh, view of Christianity, stretching through the, the Protestant Reformation, back to the church fathers, and all the way back to the apostles and the prophets. We believe about the Bible what they believed and taught about the Bible, that this is nothing less than the very Word of God. But of course, that's not the only opinion out there about this book, is it? Uh, There are lots of opinions, lots of answers to what is the Bible, and we shouldn't be afraid to acknowledge that uh, or to understand and wrestle with other ideas, nor should we be afraid to wrestle with our own questions about the scripture, and what we uh, see this book to be. Because there are lots of different views. For for some people, uh, this book is nothing more than an ancient mythology. It is a collection of stories that were invented to explain the origins of things or to kind of give weight to the moral code of that particular culture. You know, ancient Babylon had their mythology and Egypt had theirs and Israel had theirs. We call it the Old Testament. And so, so for those, this book is nothing more than merely history. It's a, it's a collection of what a bunch of dead people once upon a time believed about God. That's some people's view. Others agree that the Bible is basically ancient mythology, but they try to find some modern value in it. Uh, so if you can break through and peel back the layers of mythology, you, you kind of try to discover this little kernel of truth buried somewhere in there that, that might be helpful or beneficial for you as you try to become the best version of you or something like that. Uh, that was basically how Thomas Jefferson approached the Bible. He literally took a penknife and cut out of his Bible anything that had to do with miraculous or supernatural things, anything that had to do with the judgment of God, And what was left were a collection of Jesus' sayings, which were to Jefferson, quote, the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. So he thought there was was basically mythology, but there's something good in there. And, you know, whereas we probably don't bust out the scissors like that, many of us really do something similar when we pick and choose what parts of the Bible we like or want to believe and leave the rest out. You know, we, we basically treat this book like a box of Russell Stover's chocolates. You know, we, we go for the caramels and the, and the creamy centers. I like the love of God and the mercy of God, but the nutty ones, the, you know, God's holiness or wrath, we leave those in the box. Uh, and yet, there are still others who would tell us that this entire box is poison, that there's nothing good that could possibly come from the Bible. 
It is at best a human invention designed to prop up weak people and ignorant people. Or it is at worst an instrument of oppression. It's a tool used by people in power to marginalize the vulnerable and the powerless and to suppress opposition, even to justify genocide. Thomas Paine, in his book, The Age of Reason, wrote, The most detestable wickedness, the most horrid cruelties, and the greatest miseries that have afflicted the human race have had their origin in this thing called revelation or revealed religion. But then there are those who, quite in contrast to some of these other views, have come to this book throughout the centuries and read it as nothing less than the very Word of God. Sir Isaac Newton, guy who discovered things like gravity and the laws of motion and invented calculus, pretty sharp dude, he said, quote, We account the Scriptures of God to be the most sublime philosophy. I find more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in any profane history whatsoever. John Locke, the the philosopher and father of classical liberalism, wrote, quote, let him study the Holy Scripture, especially the New Testament. Therein are contained the words of eternal life. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Abraham Lincoln once said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good of the Savior and of the all the good of the Savior of the world is communicated to us through the book. So what should we think about the Bible? There's any number of opinions out there. What should we think about the Bible? Well, to begin to answer that question, we need to first, I think, understand what this book tells us about itself. What does the Bible say about the Bible? What does it claim to be? Because if it claims to be something other than the Word of God, then we're very much justified in not treating it like the Word of God. So what does the Bible tell us about itself? And to, to answer that, we're looking at Second Peter 1, 16 to 21, what uh, Doran read for us a few minutes ago. So again, if you're not still there, go ahead and, and make your way there. Second Peter 1, it's page 1018 in the Pew Bible. This is, uh, as it, the title uh, tips us off, the second letter that Peter wrote. Um, and this letter he writes toward the end of his life, not because he wants to, to give some new information, but because he wants to remind his readers about what they have already heard and believed. Uh, He says in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. In other words, I'm about to die, uh, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I'm gone, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I'm going to remind you of all this again. And what is it that he's reminding them of? What does he want them to be able to recall at any moment? Uh, 
It's what he's telling them throughout the book, that he does not want them to forget that their knowledge of God, their knowledge of God, this knowledge that they've gained through the Scriptures, through what he says in verse 4 is his precious and very great promises, he doesn't want them to forget that this knowledge of God is meant to bear fruit in lives of character and holiness. That, that knowing God is not just about having information. It's not just so that we can, you know, get the right answer in Bible study or in Sunday school or, or pass the exam in Bible class or something like that. It's so that we can be transformed and made more and more into the image of Christ. It's not just about information. It's about transformation. Peter doesn't want them to become, quote, ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he puts it in verse 8, but instead to grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 3.18. So his goal in reminding them is so that they would understand and always remember that the knowledge of God that they have is meant to bear fruit in lives of holiness, in lives of character. But how do we know that we can trust the knowledge of God that Peter has passed on to them? Peter's been teaching people about God for decades. What he says about God has some pretty big implications for their life, how they should live, what they should believe. How do we know that his knowledge of God that he's teaching is actually reliable, that it can be trusted, should be trusted? That's the question question that Peter answers in 116 to 21. And you'll notice that he offers two kinds of evidence to ground the reliability of what he has to say about God. Two kinds of evidence. The first is eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony, verses 16 to 18. I want you to pursue holiness and I want you to remember these things because, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. So, so what we're telling you, Peter says, about Jesus is not a myth. It's not some story made up to trick you into doing something. This is true knowledge of God, and we know it's true because we were there. That's what Peter's saying. We saw Jesus' glory revealed. We heard God's voice from heaven. Therefore, we must give our lives to following this king. And the event that Peter describes here, uh, of course, is what we call the transfiguration of Jesus. It's a story that you can go back to Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke 9 and read about that story when Jesus takes Peter and James and John with him up onto the mountain. And there the Father reveals who Jesus truly is in all of his glory and announces his endorsement of Christ as the true king and as his son. And, and the fact that there wasn't just one witness of that on the mountain, but three witnesses is important. 
uh, not only for history, but for Israel's law. You could not establish a witness as being credible apart from having two or three of them. And so we have three witnesses on the mountain who saw and heard all of this. It's reliable. And of course, the apostles witnessed a whole lot more than just that. Now, there were three men who witnessed the transfiguration. There were hundreds of men and women who witnessed the resurrection. And keep in mind that these eyewitnesses were the authors and sources of what became the New Testament. You know, we'll talk more about the reliability of the Bible next week, but the information that we have in this book about Jesus' life, death and resurrection, is not a cleverly devised myth. It is reliable history. When this was written down, there were still eyewitnesses alive who could either verify or criticize the truthfulness of it. So it wasn't written in a corner in the dark and just made up and just kind of plops down, whoop, here, here's all this word about God. They knew whether or not what the apostles were saying were true. And what they wrote has stood ever since. So, so the first evidence that Peter gives as to why the knowledge of God he's seeking to impart is trustworthy is because they were there. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They're not making this stuff up. But the se- there's a second kind of evidence he wants to give them to convince them of the truthfulness of this. You have you know, eyewitness testimony on one hand, but if that doesn't convince you, then as some, translation, some translations put it, we have something more sure on the other hand, the prophetic word. That's his second line of evidence. And, and this, in verses 19 to 21, is where we really learn quite a bit about what the Bible tells us about the Bible, uh, which, if that's true, is what God tells us about the Bible. So look again at verses 19 to 21. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, or as the updated version of the ESV puts it, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when Peter talks about the prophetic word here, he's talking not only about the the words spoken by Israel's prophets in history. He's talking about the prophecies written in the Old Testament scriptures. He says, no prophecy of scripture ever came about. Uh, It comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 20. So, So what does Peter mean when he says scripture? What is he talking about here? Well, for the early church, that meant the Old Testament. Sometimes we forget that, that that the early church that we read about in Acts and that, that Paul's writing to in his letters and so on, they didn't have the New Testament yet. It was still being written. So, so when they talk about scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament as their Bible, uh, Israel's scriptures. 
But already by the time that Peter is writing this very letter, some of the New Testament books that had been completed were already being recognized as Scripture. And you see that in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, where he refers to Paul's letters as part of the Scriptures uh, in chapter 3, verse 16. And Peter wants us to pay careful attention to these Scriptures, to which you will do well to pay attention to as to a light shining in the dark place. You know, you think about whenever you drive home after dark, after sunset. Imagine trying to do that in New England without headlights on. You know, it's dark out. Just try and make it three blocks down Winter Street without headlights on. You're not going to do it. You know, you, so, so Peter wants us to pay attention to the Bible the way we pay attention to our headlights on a dark night in New England. So you, you, your life depends on it. That's your security. That's your guide. He wants us to give careful attention to this book. And the reason he wants us to pay that kind of attention, he finally tells us, is because in this book we have the very words of God. It's not just a word of God. It doesn't just contain the words of God. It is the word of God. It is an inspired word. As as one version of the ESV puts it in verse 19, the Bible What the Bible tells us about God is even more sure than the eyewitness testimony that Peter has of having been there. So so reading the Old Testament is even more sure than actually having been there and seen Jesus yourself. That's what Peter's saying. Or if we go with the updated translation that's in front of us, that what he's saying is basically that Peter's testimony more fully confirms what the Old Testament said. Either way, it's making the same point. You can trust what the scriptures tell you about God. Because in this book, God is speaking. That's what the Bible tells us about the Bible. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, if you you want to put a doctrinal or theological category on what we're talking about, Uh, This is what we call the doctrine of inspiration. The Bible is inspired, um, which does not mean that the Bible is simply inspiring, you know, like a really good Hallmark card or something like that. That's not what we mean by inspiration, nor, uh, nor do we mean that the people who wrote it were inspired the way an artist might be inspired to paint when they see a really beautiful sunset. That's not what inspiration means here. What we mean is that this book came into being through the very breath of God. It is God speak. It is he inspired it with his breath. It's what Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. This is what's implied in the roughly 1,000 or so occurrences of phrases like, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord, or then the Lord said throughout the scriptures, that God is talking. This is what Jesus believed. 
when he said about the Old Testament, when he calls the Old Testament the Word of God. He doesn't say it was the Word of these people. He says the Old Testament is the Word of God. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture. And, and so in this book, God is speaking. Not just the message of the book, but the very words and sentences themselves. Every jot and tittle, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 5, comes from God. So how does that work? Because, you know, if, if I look at the introduction to Second Peter, it tells me who the author is. It was a guy named Simon Peter. So, so how can that book be written by Peter and written by God at the same time? Well, Peter himself explains it in verse 21 again. He says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God is speaking, but he's doing it through men. He's, this is God's word written in human words through human authors. Somewhere around 40 of them. You know, kings and prophets and priests and prisoners and historians and doctors and poets and tax collectors, all of them writing in three different languages on three different continents over the course of about 1,500 years, completing 66 books, all of them being used by God. Some of the the authors of the Bible heard directly from God. You think of the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes to them and they write it down and then they go and preach it. Uh, Some of these authors wrote out of their own experience, of, uh, even at times their own experience of pain and suffering. You think of Job or you think of several of the Psalms. Uh, some of them did research to write their books. They looked at what other books had said. They, they interviewed people. Luke, in, in the introduction to his gospel, says how he, he went around interviewing people who had seen Jesus so that he could collect this orderly account. But all of them were carried along by the Holy Spirit in their writing so that what they wrote is exactly what God wanted them to say in order to make himself known. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible as God's word. Yes, it's human authors, human words, but God carried them along by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote is exactly what he wanted them to say to make himself known. This is what the Bible claims about itself, that it is nothing less than the Word of God. Now, that's a big claim, and as I mentioned a little bit ago, we're going to examine the the truthfulness of that claim next week. We're going to talk about the reliability of God's Word. But as we close this morning, I want to offer just a few quick reflections on if this is true, if in this book God is speaking then what does that mean for us? What what implications are there if what we have in our hand is the very Word of God? First, it means that it's actually possible to know God. That's the first implication, that if this book is God's Word, it's actually possible to know God accurately and truthfully. We, we don't have to guess about who he is, not because we're so clever, but because he has made himself known. That is amazing. Second, if this book is God's word, it means that Peter is right. 
that we will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That, that if this is God's word, our greatest need in life, our greatest need in life is to listen. You know, Drew read earlier, one, one of our worship team read earlier from Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy there. If the Bible is God's word, our greatest need in life, our greatest act of love to God, our most defining characteristic ought to be to listen carefully to what God is saying. I mean, if you think about how rude it is to ignore somebody when they're talking to you, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to talk to your spouse and they're on their phone. Carissa complains about this to me regularly. They're on their phone or, or they're reading the newspaper and you're trying to have a conversation. It's just flat out rude. Or, or you're trying to, to uh, if you're a teacher, you know, trying to ta- tell your students to do something and they're not paying attention or trying to get your kids' attention. How many times do you have to say their name before the brain clicks in and they're actually listening? It's rude. Well, imagine what it's like for God to go to the incredible lengths that he's gone to over two millennia through all sorts of people to inspire his word and then to protect and preserve it as it's passed down for another two millennia only to have us ignore it. What kind of love does that communicate to God? If we love God, we will listen when he speaks. And every time we open this book, he is speaking. This is his breath. It's always fresh. He doesn't engage in small talk. This is the word of God. And so we will make a priority to be students of the word. If if the Bible is God's word, we will make a priority to listen, to be students of it. And essential to being listeners and students of it is that we make a priority of teaching the word. Um, you know, when we think about the way that we try to, at least, we don't always get it right, but the way we try to organize ministries in this church or the way that we encourage people to uh, shape their family life is to make teaching the word of God a priority. And so, you know, the reason that literally every ministry of the church does that is because God is speaking in this book. And, and we have nothing if we're not listening. This is the, the reason that we preach from the Bible every Sunday instead of offering a, you know, an inspiring talk loosely based on the Bible. That's no good for you. You do not need to hear from me. You need to hear from God. I Believe me, I have nothing of value to add to you. My job is to preach the word, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, this is all I've got to give you. And if I ever stop giving you this, you need to stop paying my salary and find somebody else. This is what we've got, and that's why. Because in it, God is speaking. It's the same reason that that usually we preach through whole books of the Bible. Because God's Word does not come to us in these isolated uh, doctrines or commands or examples or, or or uh, principles, it comes to us in whole stories and poems and letters. And we can make much better sense of what God's saying in those stories, poems, and letters if we pay attention to how they work together as a whole. So we prioritize working through whole books of the Bible. 
If the Bible is nothing less than the word of God, our greatest duty is to pay careful attention to it, to listen to it. But third, and finally, you're not really paying careful attention to someone who's talking to you unless you're doing something with what they say. Again, you know, think of my boss tells me to do something and I hear the words with my ears, but nothing happens as a result of hearing those words. Am I really listening? Peter wants us to pay careful attention, not just so we get more information, but so that our knowledge of God does not become ineffective and unfruitful, but instead bears fruit in lives of holiness and character. And so that means that hearing God requires a proper response to what we hear. What does that look like? The way our doctrinal statement put it uh, that we looked at earlier is that the Bible is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I think that's a great summary of how we ought to respond to the Bible. Uh, Book of James puts it this way, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so the centrality of Scripture in the life of the church, again, it's more than just gaining information. It is about transformation and obedience. It should result in changed lives. That begins by believing the central message of the Bible, and that's Jesus. The most important response we have to the fact that this book is God's Word is to believe the message of Christ. The whole Bible works together to reveal to us who he is and what he came to do in giving his life for us to redeem us. Jesus himself says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Bible, rightly heard, points us to Jesus. So our first response is to believe in him, nothing else that the Bible says, uh, nothing else that we do with it is really going to make sense if we don't do it through faith in Christ, if we don't read it through faith in Christ. But it also means not just believing in Jesus, but becoming more and more like him, too. It means growing in our knowledge, in our holiness, in our grace. God's word should help us to love righteousness more and more. And to hate sin more and more. It should help us to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. It should shape our relationships. If, if I'm paying attention to God's word, I should make a priority of living in reconciled relationships, especially within the body. That's one of the reasons why we make a big deal of that at Westgate. Not just because it's healthy, but because God tells us to make a big deal of it in his scriptures. The Bible should shape our view of morality. You know, all of the controversies being debated today, sexual ethics, marriage, gender identity, racism, all of these things, God says something about those things in his word. And therefore, what matters to the Christian is not what I want to think about something like that, but what does God say about it? That's my first and foremost priority. 
And if I only listen to the parts of the Bible that I like or agree with, then I'm not really believing the Bible. I'm simply believing myself. So the Bible should shape our view of morality. It should shape our priorities and our values in every ministry. It really, everything, you know, at every level of life and ministry, this book ought to affect us. You know, think of our, uh, our, the way we approach leadership in the church. You know, for instance, the, the reason that we ask qualified men to serve as elders here at Westgate is not because that's the way we've always done it. It's not actually the way we've always done it. Uh, nor is it because we think it's the most strategic or effective model of leadership. It's because that's what God, God's Word says in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. And so, so when God speaks, it matters that we listen and it matters that we obey. This is His voice. This is our authority. We need to believe the Bible and what it teaches. We need to obey what it commands and trust what it promises. Now, that doesn't mean we've got it all figured out. I want to make that clear. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't have anything left to learn. We have plenty to learn. We have plenty to unlearn and relearn, in fact. That's all part of the journey of listening and, and growing and trying to understand better and better what God is saying in the Scriptures. But it means that what drives us when we run into a question about what to believe or how to act or, or what to do is not what we think it should be or what the world tells us the answer is, what the latest blogger deems being on the right side of history. What drives us is what God says. That is our commitment. That is our goal understanding and believing and obeying and trusting this book because in it, God speaks. Our posture towards Scripture, if it really is God's Word, should reflect the, uh, the Puritan heritage of New England. J.I. Packer describes it like this. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture, and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect His written Word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to Him than to prize it and pour over it, and then to live out and give out its teaching. May it, that be the kind of devotion and, and affection and commitment we have to the Word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we never, may we never become bored with the fact that you are a God who speaks. May we never think so highly of ourselves that we don't need to listen or that we can stand and correct you. Lord, would you fill our hearts with a love for you that shows itself in careful attention to your word 
like a light shining in a dark place. Would you give us ears to hear, God? May may we live lives that are always listening because you are always speaking through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name.